You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Before we get into the message today, I do want to talk just briefly about an opportunity that I think we, we do have this summer. Dale said the official summer season kicks off next weekend, and summer has always been, of course, a season of fun. Um, this summer, after being restricted for so long, it's going to be a lot of fun to finally get out this this summer. I mean, this is the time we get out of town more, like Dale said. We we go to the beach more, maybe we barbecue more. And so uh, just this past week, I got a chance to go to a, a Dodger game. It's the first you know, big public game I got to go to uh, since COVID. And even though the crowd was limited, the energy was amazing. I mean, you could just tell everyone was, we can't believe we're out. We can't believe we got out of our homes. We're so excited. And it got me thinking, uh, this summer is a great opportunity not only for us to have fun, but to get together with those that God has put in our life that are not part of a church. So while we're making up for the lost summer, I encourage you to think of these two words this summer, orient outward. And what I mean by that is just simply in the middle of all that we're doing for fun, just think, who can I include? Just look out, maybe look out on your neighborhood or to uh, the families on your kid's sports team and try to figure out what, what can we do fun to include some people uh, in our lives. Now, as a church, we've put together a list of some Orient Outward events that we're going to be offering this summer that you can invite people to. We don't have dates on these events yet because we're, we're kind of finalizing that. We should have that in the next week or so. But the focus of these events is fun and inviting people who are not part of a church. So if any of these events make sense to you, you think, well, that'd, that'd be fun. My family or I'd like to be a part of that. Then take the extra step, orient outward, and think, now, who could I invite to this who's not a part of a church? And then I would encourage you to add your ideas to these ideas. I mean, maybe you can have a block party. Maybe you've never done one. Figure out how to do that. Maybe come up with some additional play dates if you've got some friends that have kids that are the same age as you. Maybe uh, some beach days. Invite some other families to join you, individuals to join you. Maybe some barbecues uh, in your backyard. Maybe even your front yard barbecue. So I'm really looking forward to this summer. I've got kind of a list of things I really want to do. You've probably got the same list. So let's just take that extra step and think, who can we include? Who can we join in with as we do that? So it's going to be a, a fun summer and a lot of opportunities that I think God can really use in the future if we take advantage of that. So now let's turn to the message for today. We are in the middle of a series entitled, Not What You'd Expect. This past year, we have seen an unprecedented rise in the use of the word unprecedented. <laughs> in fact, this was going to be the title of this series until I got really good feedback. People are so sick and tired of this word. If they see this word, they're going to have a negative reaction, and it's going to be a negative start to the series. So we entitled it Not What You'd Expect. Let me show you a chart of the appearance of the word unprecedented in company disclosures over the last 15 years. This is a fascinating study. So you can see how things were going along, and then this is exactly where COVID hit in 2020. And 2020 represented a 600% jump in the use of the word unprecedented. And this is just in company disclosures. I haven't seen a study on news outlets. I, that's almost all they're saying is unprecedented, unprecedented. Now, the reason is obvious. We've encountered many experiences for which we had no previous experience, no precedent. And what we'd expected, of course, didn't fit reality, the reality of what happened. So we had to adjust our thinking over and over again about how we thought things were going to go. 
And we had to adjust our ways, our lives. Because the thing about reality is it does not adjust to us. We have to adjust to it. Now, God, of course, is the, the source of reality. He is the author of reality, what really happens. And what that means is that we have to continually adjust our thinking to his thinking and our ways of doing life to his way of doing life. And if we don't do that, well, then we're running up against reality, and life is just going to be harder for us than it has to be. In the pages of the Bible, God gives us a guide to help us adjust to the unexpected times of life. And just like the life that it offers to guide us through, there are a number of surprising, unprecedented ideas in the Bible. And I found that these surprising parts of the Bible tend to be most helpful to me because they identify some of the key areas in my thinking and in my way of doing life that are really different than God's thinking in his way of doing life. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, it says this, God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now what this is saying is God is not only smarter than us, he is, and we talked about the expanse, the, the range of which his mind and thinking is higher than ours, but it's not just that he's smarter than us, he is higher than us. And he's higher in two capacities, in thought capacity and in authority. And these two go together. They're very important. If you're under authority, if you are in a work environment where you have a boss, it really helps if your boss is smarter than you. That, that makes it easier for you to follow your boss because they're usually right in what they're asking you to do. But if you think they are wrong, if you think that you are smarter than them, it still doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want to do because you're under authority. They're in charge. And it's the same way with God. God is both our top authority and he is way, way smarter than us. But of course, that doesn't keep us from thinking we know better. We are kind of like, two-year-olds who clearly don't have the mental capacity of their parents, but are still confident that they know what's best, that they're the smartest person in the room. So what do we do whenever life surprises us? Well, in relationship to God, the common response is we tend to get mad at him. Sometimes we get Outwardly mad, sometimes we just burn on the inside and go silent before God. Sometimes we decide we're just not going to believe in him anymore because we're smarter than him and he's done something that we don't agree with. Today I want to suggest a very different option to the surprises of life than anger at God. And that is prayer to God. Now that may seem like a strange polar opposite but whenever we pray, what we're doing is we are looking up at the God who is higher. And just simply beginning to pray begins to put ourselves in the right position. Anger means we're looking down at God and saying, God, you need to start doing things my way. Prayer is the opposite. It looks up at God and says, God, help me, help me understand your ways and adjust to your ways. Prayer is one of the places where the surprises of life 
have the best chance to turn into change, to growth. And that brings us to the unprecedented page in the Bible that we're going to consider today. Jeremiah 14, in the Old Testament, verse 11, says this. Then the Lord said to me, do not pray for the well-being of this people. Now, again, when I read this the first time, I had to go back and read, did it say, do not pray? Is, that, is the word not in there? It is. This is the only book in the Bible where you will hear God say, do not pray. Lots of places where God says pray. This is the only book in the Bible where God says do not pray. Why would God tell the prophet Jeremiah to not pray for these people? Well, as you read the context of what's going on, it's because there's something that God was planning to do, and he didn't want Jeremiah's prayers getting in the way of what he was planning to do. Really? That's also surprising. I mean, the creator of heaven and earth is telling one frail human being, you better not get in my way by praying. That's surprising to us. How can that be? How, how could prayer get in the way of God's intentions on this matter? That's not how we view prayer. We don't have that powerful a view of prayer. We tend to think of prayer as kind of a last resort when all other means of getting what we need and want has been exhausted. But that's not how God sees prayer. God thinks prayer is the most powerful thing that we can do. Jeremiah gives us two reasons why prayer is so powerful. The first reason is that prayer is personal. Prayer is the point at which our relationship with God grows. And it becomes very personal. God takes our prayers very personally. We often tend to think of prayer kind of like a shopping list, and God as the store, which kind of makes sense. I mean, we have needs, and God, as the one who is in the position of ultimate power, can get us what we need. He's the store. So we ask. And we're not completely wrong on this. God invites us to ask him for things that we need. He is the one that can supply what we need. The problem with this kind of shopping approach to prayer is that prayer is about so much more than us asking and God giving us what we need and want. At its core, praying to God is about us talking to the one who loves us and whom we are to love. So the bigger purpose and therefore the bigger power of prayer is the effect it has on deepening our relationship with God. That's the deeper purpose. You know, if you're a parent, your children are going to ask you for stuff. And if what they're asking for is good for them, you will probably give it to them if you can. But that's not anywhere close to the most important thing when it comes to the relationship with your child. You want a relationship with your child. I don't know of any parent that is looking for a purely transactional relationship with their children. And I also don't know of any child that really down deep inside wants a parent who just fulfills their orders and doesn't really love them. That's not the kind of relationship that a parent-child relationship is. And it's the same with God and us. He desires more than a list relationship with us. And we truthfully need more. The prophet Jeremiah is an example of how personal God wants prayer to be with him. Now, this 
as you read through the story of Jeremiah, is not the first time Jeremiah has prayed. We don't know how long Jeremiah's been praying, but it's pretty obvious that he has gotten close to God, and God has drawn close to him in prayer. And so the result of that is that God has developed a soft spot in his heart for Jeremiah. Not a weakness kind of soft spot, but an affection for and therefore influence kind of soft spot. We have these kinds of soft spots in relationships with other people. There are people whose words to us hold greater influence over the decisions we make. For me, I have a really hard time saying no to my grandkids. They've got a soft spot in my heart. Recently, one of my granddaughters came up to me and she said, Grandpa, I just don't get to spend as much time with you as I'd like. Could you read a book to me? And I said, oh, I am so busy, I really can't right now. No, of course I didn't say that. <laughs> I mean, it pains me to even pretend that I said that. I mean, I did have plans. I had some things that I needed to get to. But all of the other plans I had, all of the intentions of my heart, suddenly evaporated in the face of her request. And we sat down and read a book together. Is it possible that God has a similar kind of soft spot like that? He seems to think so. I mean, he's not open to every request. It seems that only certain people affect him. What kind of people affect him? It's like us. It's the people that are close to us. It's the people that are close to him that have the biggest impact on him. For 900 years before this verse was written, God had been watching the nation of Israel slide into moral decay. They were doing horrendous things. They got to the point where they were beginning to offer their children to idols. That's what the neighboring nations were doing, and they had started recently getting into that practice. God had watched his temple, the place of worship to him, be turned into a place of prostitution. He had watched over and over again as the weak and the poor of the nation of Israel had been abused by those who had the strength. And so finally, even the God who, Scripture says, is slow to anger, had finally had enough. So what he had decided to do, and what he's talking to Jeremiah about here, is after 900 years of patience, more patience than any of us would have ever had, God had decided it was time to let the city of Jerusalem fall. So he first turns to Jeremiah before that event happens and says, now don't you dare pray for these people. Because I'm serious. I've decided that I'm doing this. Why did he turn to Jeremiah? Well, it's because Jeremiah, it turns out, is one of the few who could possibly alter the intention that God had of letting Jerusalem fall. And so God is telling Jeremiah, don't get in the way of what I'm planning by praying. So what does Jeremiah do? He prays. And the next chapter, the first verse, we read this. Jeremiah 15, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not go out to this people. Send them away from my presence. Let them go. What God is saying is, Jeremiah, I'm serious. Stop praying. He's saying, Jeremiah, you don't understand how serious I am. Let me tell you how serious I am. Even if Moses and Samuel 
would pray to me, I would still let Jerusalem fall. Well, again, why is there even a thought that the prayers of these two individuals could alter God's intention? It's because it had happened. With Moses, 900 years earlier, Moses was the one that God used to lead the children of Israel out of captivity in Egypt. And amazingly, just after all of that miraculous rescue, what they did is they took the gold that God had provided for them from the people of Egypt, and they made that into a golden calf, and they began worshiping this golden calf and thanking this golden calf for saving them. And so God had said, all right, we're going to have to bring some judgment on these people. And Moses started praying and asking for God to change his intentions. And amazingly, God did. So Moses had prayed, and God had changed. Same thing had happened several hundred years later with Samuel. Samuel had prayed. God had intended to, again, bring judgment on the nation of Israel because of their sin. And this time, the instrument was going to be a Philistine ambush. But Samuel prayed, and God rescued Israel from the ambush. So God is referencing moments in history when his intention was to do this, and Moses had prayed, and he did this instead. And his intention was to do this, and Samuel prayed, and he did this instead. And so now Jeremiah is praying, and God says, you know what? Even if it was Moses again and Samuel again, and you now, I'm, st- I'm really going to do this. This is my firm intention. So when God said, don't pray, and mentioned these men, what he's doing is he again is identifying the nature of this soft spot. It's prayer, but it's not just prayer. It's the prayer of a certain kind of person. What is it about these three individuals, Moses, Samuel, Jeremiah? Well, in James 5.16, we are told, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, a righteous person is not a perfect person because there are none of those. A righteous person is simply an individual who has decided to guide their life by what God says is right. That's what it means to be righteous. The word right is the root of that word. God and what he says is the moral compass of their life. And as they fail, as they fall, they get back up, reorient themselves by the compass of what God says is right, and they keep making progress. You can read the story of these individuals. They were all frail. They all made mistakes. They all fell, but they kept getting up, resetting their mind on doing what is right, in pursuing God. This verse in James is actually talking about another person whose prayers were powerful and effective. That person's name is Elijah. And it goes on to say this about Elijah, just in case we're unclear about what a righteous person is. It says he was a man just like us. Elijah was a man just like us. He was a normal person who, like us, struggled and kept falling. Again, you can read examples of Elijah's frailty. So who is it that has your ear? It's those who have an impact on you, and you've had an impact on them. You're close. You see, influence in a good relationship goes both ways. And it's the same in our relationship with God. God is still in charge, but he actually draws close to us, close enough to allow us to have an influence on his heart. So 
here's what this is saying, is you cannot have, not have an influence on God in prayer if he's not had an influence on you in life. This is the way it is in our relationships, and it's in the way it is in our relationship with God. Now, I am no Jeremiah or Moses or Samuel or Elijah when it comes to prayer. I'll be honest, prayer has always been a challenge for me. I, I love studying the Bible. It fascinates me. Prayer is harder for me. And the reason is, I mean, I find it hard to talk to the God that I can't see or I can't hear. I mean, it's kind of a one-way conversation, which makes, which makes it tough for all of us. And the other problem for me is I'm a task person. And so even in conversations with people that I can see, sometimes it's easy for my mind to drift into all the stuff I got to do. And I really have to focus to stay engaged in some conversations because I'm already thinking of my to-do list. And the same thing happens when I pray. Now, I get a few minutes into it, and that list starts coming in my mind. And I start thinking, I got to get going on stuff. So I have a hard time just hanging in there and praying and talking to God. So if you're like me, let me share with you a helpful tip, something that's been really helpful to me. If you have a list, like I do, of, the, of some of the things that you're praying for, that's fine. Keep doing that. I would recommend you add a second kind of list. I call it an anxious list. It comes out of 1 Peter 5, verse 7, where God says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So this is what I'd recommend you do. Think, what are the top three things that I am anxious about today? I mean, if I gave you time right now, you could probably think pretty quickly. What are the three things I'm most anxious about right now? That item, those items on, on your list, those three items will tell you what you care about most. What we are anxious about is always something that's close to our heart. We are anxious about the people we love. We're anxious about the things that are important to us. So let me ask you this. If you had the, the three things in mind, who might be able to guess what those top three are? Probably someone close to you. You know, if, if I came up with a list and you asked my wife, what do you think Bevan's top three things that he's worried about are? I bet you she'd nail it. Why? She's close to me. And part of what that means is I've told her about these things. And she's told me about the things that she's anxious about. Why? Because she cares for me. And this is the point that God is making this. Cast, tell God your anxieties. Why? He cares. Unlike us, he knows what we're all anxious about. We don't, I, I can't look at you and say, oh, I can see what you're anxious about. He knows. So we are to cast our anxieties on him, not so that he can be informed, but so that the relationship can, can draw close. And we can learn to trust him with these things. So for me, it, it really helps making prayer more personal just to take the top three things I'm anxious about at the beginning of every day and sometimes throughout the day, just pause and say, God, I'm really nervous about this. You know, help me. Here's what I'm nervous about. Just pray those things. So prayer is personal. The second reason prayer is so powerful is that it's instructional. It has the power to not only teach us, but to change us. That's the purpose of instruction. Not just information, but actually change. One of the common statements I hear about prayer is that it works. Prayer works. And people will say this, 
whenever something they've been praying about actually works out. Now, I personally have seen the power of prayer. As early as last week, my wife and I had an amazing answer to prayer that was exactly what we've been praying for. In fact, even more than what we've been praying for in something. And it's in those moments I want to chime in and shout at the top of my lungs to everyone who listened, prayer works. Listen, we prayed for this, and this happened. It's miraculous. Prayer works. The problem I have is this. There are some things I've been praying about that haven't worked out. So do I just kind of whistle past the grave of those prayers and pretend they're not real? That's not honest. I mean, if you say something works, you don't mean occasionally. You mean all the time, right? I mean, if your car starts 50% of the time, you don't go around bragging to everyone that your car works. No, you take that car to the mechanic to get it fixed so that it will work and start 100% of the time. So it's, it's not honest for us to say prayer works whenever prayer works and then say nothing when prayer doesn't work because that sets people up for wrong expectations and a disappointment. And they start praying, and for them, it doesn't work. And so then they stop praying. Why do so many prayers go unanswered? I mean, many go answered, but there's, there's a lot that go unanswered. Why? I mean, Jeremiah didn't get the answer to the prayer that he prayed. Jerusalem did fall. And it's the same with many of my prayers. Now, some of the prayers that I didn't get what I was asking for, I, I can now see why God didn't grant me what I'd been asking for. But I'll be honest, there's still a pro plenty of them that I don't understand why God still hasn't granted those. But I will tell you this, in every case where God has said no, there's something important for me to learn from that prayer. In some cases, my motives were wrong. James talks about this. You, you ask, but you ask with wrong motives. God's very concerned about why we're doing things, not just what we're doing. So in some cases, my motives had to be purified in what I was requesting, and that took time for me to see. In some cases, my request was too shallow. I hadn't really thought much about what I was praying, and, and I needed to do some more thinking and pray at a deeper level, and that took time. In every case where my prayers have not been answered yet, I have needed to grow in endurance, and that just takes time. And in every case, if I had stopped praying because it wasn't working, I would not have learned what God wanted to teach me in that area. So if we see prayer as, as something that works, kind of like a button, a God button that we push to get what we want, kind of like in those vending machines, then we're, we're not going to pray much or we're going to pray hit and miss because if it's a button, we don't push buttons that don't work very well. I mean, how many times would you push a button that doesn't work? Not many. The purpose of a button is to get the results that you're pushing the button for. And if it doesn't, you're just wasting your time pushing your button. That's why a lot of people don't pray. They just, it feels like they're wasting their time. Later in the book of Jeremiah, Israel says that they have found a God button. They don't use that term, but that's what they're looking for. They're looking for something on the God level that works better 
than the real God in real prayer. It's more consistent. Something that had a better success rate than prayer to the real God. The nations around them were worshiping at this time an idol called the Queen of Heaven. She was the supposed goddess of the planet Venus. And everyone in Israel knew that this is what the nations around them were worshiping. This was the popular idol of the day. And as they looked around them, all of the other nations who were worshiping this queen of heaven seemed to be doing better. So as a nation, they kind of conducted an experiment. They decided, well, let's us worship this goddess and see if things get better. And you know what? Things got better. And then they said, well, let's just make sure this is right. Let's stop worshiping the queen of heaven and see what happens. And guess what? Things got worse. This is what they say in Jeremiah 44, verse 18. But ever since we've stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we've had nothing and have been perishing by sword and famine. Things have been falling apart for us ever since we stopped worshiping. This reveals their heart in the relationship with God. And it reveals, honestly, our heart. It's very similar. The people of Israel, like us, were looking for kind of a vending machine relationship with God, something that worked. And they found the queen of heaven. It seemed to be working. Now, of course, I don't know of anybody that's praying to the queen of heaven now and offering incense and drink offerings to the queen of heaven. I mean, we're modern people. We know that idols aren't real. We, we know that there isn't a goddess of the planet Venus. So it makes no sense to pray to something that's not true. But in its place, in the place of the idols of the ancient days, we have different idols. I mean, one of our idols is science. Science is not bad. Science has been really helpful. But what science has done is science has unlocked the code of all kinds of mysteries. In a sense, science has revealed a bunch of buttons to make things work. And we have benefited from that. But this has affected our prayer life. There's less need now in real life for us to pray. For example, we have found the irrigation and agricultural buttons. So we really don't pray for food that much. I mean, in the ancient days, people prayed for food all the time because they were one drought away from death. They prayed. We've got irrigation. We've got reservoirs. We've got resources. So we really don't need to pray for food. We have medical buttons now. So when we get sick, hmm, we might pray, but kind of as the icing on the cake, what we really rely on is medical science, which is great. I do too. It's helpful. I'll I'll never forget an experience years ago in a a village in northern Ghana for me where a woman who had an abscess, a tooth abscess that had swollen. It was like way out to here. And she asked me to pray for her abscess tooth. So I began to pray. And I'll be honest, While I was praying and asking God to protect her life and to heal her from this abscess tooth, all I could think was is, we need a dentist. 
how close is the nearest dentist? Because dentists know how to deal with this. She's in this remote village, far away from medical care. That's what we really need. And that's all I could think about while I was praying. Now, I was partly right. A dentist could have really helped. But it revealed to me, it's like, wow, as a modern person, we really have less to pray for. And partly that's really good. It's benefited us. God's blessed us through that, but we don't pray that much now. I don't pray that much. The buttons of science work much better than prayer. So prayer is now the last button we tend to reach and push. But here's the issue. While we may have discovered how the vending machines of reality work, not completely, but substantially, it turns out that God is still the one who, talks, who stocks the machines. He's the resource behind the science. And so to ignore him is to ignore the source of life. He is not our vendor. He is our heavenly father who invites us into a real relationship with him. And what that means is sometimes he says no. Sometimes he doesn't work in that way. Four of our grandchildren are spending four nights with us this coming weekend while their parents get away on a trip. And I'm pretty excited about it, but I'll be honest, I'm a little nervous <laughs> about it too. And the reason is because there's a difference between parenting and grandparenting. If you're a grandparent, you know this. Well, if you're a parent, you know this. I would describe the difference this way. Being a grandparent means that you can almost exclusively say yes to your grandchildren all the time. Being a parent means that you can't always say yes to your kids all the time. You have to say no. And depending on the season of life, it may feel like that's all you're saying is no. It's not near as fun being a parent as it is being a grandparent. Because grandparenting is all yes. Parenting is a mixture, but boy, the no's are tough. And so here's the challenge, and the thing I'm nervous about this weekend is it's one thing when they come and visit, but if they're going to live with us and they're going to go to bed and sleep there and get up in the morning and eat food and navigate the relationship with each other, there's just no way that for four days we can say nothing but yes to them. That's not reality. We're going to have to say no. And that's going to be a shock to us and it's going to be a shock to them. So pray for us. <laughs> I'm not really sure how it's going. I think, I mean, they're, they're good kids, but it's going to be four days of reality. I say that to say God is not our heavenly grandfather. He's our heavenly father. And what that means is that he insists on a real relationship with us, not a vendor relationship that works, that is always about getting what we want. And that's because he loves us. And if we will love him, and we will follow him through the surprising twists and turns of life, there will be a soft spot for us in his heart. And our words spoken to him. And that's amazing. But it's going to be a soft spot. It's not a button. He will say no, and it will be for our good, even if we don't understand it. And 
particularly when he says no, in my experience, those will be some of the best learning opportunities of your lifetime. So when life surprises you, which it's been doing a lot this last year, God is inviting you to look up to the one who loves you and whose thoughts and whose ways are higher than yours. So as an application, I would encourage you to try the anxious list. Start each day. Start with three. If you got eight, that's fine. But start with three. What are the three things that you are anxious about today? And just pour out your heart to God. Say, God, this is, as I'm going to this day, this is what I'm nervous about. And maybe throughout the day, as you remember, cast those on him. Bring those to him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Father, this is, to me, and I think to us, this is just so stunning that frail and flawed people like us could have this kind of influence over the one who drives all of reality. And I confess that I put much more stock in my effort and in the things that we have discovered and how they work. And oftentimes I'm, I'm too slow to pray. When in fact, the first thing that often needs to be and this makes most sense to do is to cry out to you in a moment of need. So I pray that you would help us to come to you with our anxieties, with our needs, to pour out our hearts to you and to draw close to you. We thank you for hearing us and for loving us. We are so grateful. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.